Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators podcast, sponsored by Zoetis Animal Health. I'm your host, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief of The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses in the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. This podcast is brought to you by Zoetist. Now introducing Core EQ Innovator from Zoetis, the first and only vaccine to protect against all five potentially fatal core equine diseases in a single injection. Talk to your veterinarian today to schedule your horse's spring vaccination with Core EQ Innovator. Today we will be talking about a topic that affects all horse owners and managers, equine nutrition. Our guest today is Dr. Laurie Lawrence, an equine programs professor in the University of Kentucky's College of Agriculture, Food, and Environment. Her research interests include nutrient requirements of broodmares and foals, nutrient requirements of exercising horses, equine digestive physiology, pasture and forage utilization, and equine exercise physiology. I've always found she does an incredible job of making the often complex topic of equine nutrition understandable and approachable. Welcome, Dr. Lawrence. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming. So I'd like to get started by finding out a little bit about your background. How did you end up focusing your career on nutrition and horses? Well, um, I grew up on a small farm in New York. My dad trained thoroughbred racehorses, and so we always had horses at home. We had some broodmares, we had foals, we had horses that came home as layups. So I was around horses and learning to take care of horses since I was really little. And I don't know at what point, but um, at some point I heard somebody talk about nutrition, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. I, I had sort of never thought about the fact that when you're feeding horses that you're actually doing something in terms of their health. And so I've been interested in nutrition for a long, long time. And how long have you been an equine nutrition researcher? Well, that would, that's like never ask a lady about her age, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess true. All right. You don't have to tell us that. <laughs> a long time. So anyway, yeah. Do you have your own horses now? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I thought people always ask me what kind of horses I have, and I have the kind of horse that's called a TMTC. Have you ever heard of that kind of horse? I have not. That's the uh, too many to count type of horse. <laughs> nice. I love it. So you've probably been out there uh, this morning feeding a bunch of the horses then, huh? Yeah, we've we've got horses at home, and we have some in training, so um, yeah. We've got some broodmares and we've got some uh, retirees at our house. And then uh, we've got some horses that are in training too. I love it. Mostly thoroughbreds then? Thoroughbreds and standardbreds. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about your lab. How many people do you have on your team there? Well, our team is, um, it's pretty big and diverse because we try to bring in folks from other areas as well. So, um, we have undergraduate students, we have graduate students, we have research techs, uh, we have lab techs. Um, and so a pretty diverse group of people that um, we would consider part of our lab. And then um, I'm really fortunate because my faculty appointment is in the Department of Animal and Food Sciences, 
And that means that I get to work with some world-class nutritionists who deal with other species. And so whether they're swine nutritionists or dairy cattle nutritionists or beef cattle nutritionists or poultry nutritionists, you know, they are at the cutting edge of their area of nutrition. And so they not only provide expertise um, for us as well as um, they have facilities in their labs to do things that we might not be able to do. So it's really a great collaborative type of thing to be in an environment with other nutritionists, even though they may not know a lot about horses, if they know a lot about, say, a certain vitamin or uh, a certain mineral, then that's useful to us too. And then we also collaborate um, across departments, and that's really helpful too. So we try to uh, drag as many people into the horse area as we can, even though that may not be their main area of interest. You're an ambassador for the horse then. I, I try that. to be. <laughs> so uh, you have a lot of, you always have a lot of really interesting research underway. I understand that some of it that you have going on right now is on forage composition. So could you describe a little bit of that research and what your aims are with it, please? Sure. You know, we always hear that forages are the cornerstone of the horse's diet or forage first. And I think that's that's really true. That's a, a really important thing for us to remember. But forages are also one of the most variable components in the horse's diet. So anybody that's a horse owner knows that, you know, one of the things that you get every year or many times a year is hay. And sometimes your hay this month is not the same as the hay that you had last month. And sometimes you have to make decisions based on price or availability or other things. So, so we're really interested in understanding um, both what causes some of the variability in forages and then how forages are uh, digested by horses and also what affects their palatability. So I think sometimes, you know, we all hear that you should feed your horse high quality hay. And certainly that means you need to feed them hay that's really clean and free of dust and mold. But the other part, the nutritional quality part, uh, that's a little bit more complicated. And anybody that's ever had their hay analyzed and they get back a forage report, it looks like alphabet soup, right? And so yes. you look at all those things and you go, okay, I did what I was told, I got it analyzed, now what does this mean? And so one of the things that we're really interested in doing is trying to take those chemical composition variables that you see on your forage report and then understand how they apply to the digestibility of the forage by the horse, because that's really the most important thing, right, is to understand how well the horse can digest and utilize the nutrients that are there. And so that's really a main area that we've been working on, and we've we've we do that both using um, digestibility studies with horses where we feed them forages and then we collect all their feces and determine digestibility, which sounds like kind of a dirty job, but it's important. <laughs> and then we also do that um, using in vitro or in lab methods. And so, um, so those are th some things that we've been working on. Oh, that's really interesting. I know that when I get the hay analysis back from my nutritionist, I, I really don't know. I just I just say, just tell me what this means. How much do I need to feed my horse on top of this? So. Right. And one of the things that we would really like to be able to get to is sort of a, a one number value for forages that we could then use uh, to tell horse owners. So here, this particular forage, let's say it's a six, you know, on a scale of 10, whatever, um, that this forage would be 
really suitable for horses that are in light work. And then let's look at this one over here, and this one's a nine on a scale of 10, and it would be really suitable for lactating mares or weanlings who have really high requirements. So we'd like to get something much more simple and user-friendly um, rather than the alphabet soup that comes on your forage report. I mean, that's important, but just something that's more practical that people could apply. That sounds really great. I look forward to when that comes out. So while we're on the topic of forages, I know that our readers of the Horse Magazine and our listeners to this podcast and uh, readers on thehorse.com have a lot of interest in managing horses with metabolic issues and they and hard and easy keepers. So could you explain to our listeners what non-structural carbohydrates are and how they impact horse health? And what are some recent findings that you guys have had in your lab about the subject? Sure. So let's start with the plant. So the plants, um, plants are wonderful things. We couldn't live without them because they are the uh, units that actually are going to make carbohydrates. And so during photosynthesis, the plant makes glucose. And then that glucose is going to be um, used by the plant and it will either be incorporated into what we would call structural carbohydrates, which are things like cellulose. Um, and those provide the cell walls of the plant and provide basically the structure. Or the plant can take the glucose um, and turn it into non-structural carbohydrates. And so non-structural carbohydrates are ones that we would think of generally as being storage carbohydrates. So the plant has to have some storage reserves to use at night when they're not practicing photosynthesis. Um, and so those are the storage carbohydrates, or sometimes we call them non-structural because they're not associated with the cell walls. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the uh, how we break them down. And the okay. structural carbohydrates are important to us because those are the ones that are least digestible. Um, and so we know that they affect digestibility and they probably also affect palatability. Um, whereas the non-structural carbohydrates are going to be the ones that are the most digestible. And so in the, in the plant, in, in plants, uh, the non-structural carbohydrates could be in the form of simple sugars or um, disaccharides or they could be in the form of starch. And so, for instance, cereal grains, when they make their seed, they put starch in the seed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and some forages, just hay or pasture, will have a little bit of starch in them as well. And then there's another uh, type of storage carbohydrate in cool season grasses that's called fructan. And so fructan is a, um, a more complex, can be, a longer chain of um, simple sugars, fructose included, um, that's not so easily digested. It's not easily digested in the small intestine, but it can be fermented in the large intestine. So basically, when we think about the non-structural carbohydrates, from my perspective, I think about them in two ways. I think about, so is this non-structural carbohydrate going to be one that the horse absorbs basically as glucose from the small intestine that can raise the horse's blood glucose levels and potentially affect their insulin concentrations? Or is it a type of non-structural carbohydrate that might bypass to the large intestine where it can be rapidly fermented. Um, and that's, that's okay if there's some of it, it makes it more digestible. But if there's a lot of it, then that could be something that would disrupt the uh, 
bacteria in the hindgut. So that's that's the way I think about it, sort of the two components. Does it affect their blood glucose or does it affect their could it affect their large intestine? And so for horses that have metabolic problems, if you're worried about insulin glucose, then you're worried about the first type. Mm-hmm. And if you are worried about horses that say um, have had digestive upsets before, then you're worried about the second type or for horses that have been laminitic, you're probably worried about both of those. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of guidelines out there on non-structural carbohydrates, but that's just my my overview of it. That's a really good explanation. Um, you know, I read about these things all the time, but so, you know, sometimes just being able to to explain it to somebody in a way that's really approachable and understandable. Thank you for doing that for me. Um, so my horse, he fits into the group with a digestive upset. So I pay attention to sugars for that reason. Yep. So, um, what are some recent findings that you guys have had in your lab about, um, carbs in, in forages? Sure. Um, so this is actually a really good example of a collaboration that we have. Um, and so we work, we've been working for several years with the folks over in plant and soil science, um, the forage specialists over there Um, and of course they look at plants in one way and we look at plants in a different way Um, and so one of the things that we've been interested in looking at is how in pasture grasses that are typical here in uh, central Kentucky how do how do the non-structural carbohydrates change um, over the course of the growing season and also from morning to afternoon. And so um, there, we've had two graduate students in the um, plant and soil science department that have worked on that project. Um, and so now we have a lot of information on uh, central Kentucky type pastures um, as far as when you would expect to see um, the highest concentrations of non-structural carbohydrates and when you expect to see the lowest. And our findings are are much similar to others where we see the highest concentrations generally in the afternoon, um, particularly on sunny days. Um, And then you see some seasonal effects. So um, generally in the summer, you get a little bit of a a downward dip, whereas in the spring and in the fall, um, you see tend to see a little bit of a more higher concentration. Okay. We've also looked at different varieties of grasses, so which grasses tend to be the highest um, versus which grasses tend to be lower. So um, I think all of that's really useful information um, that we can provide to folks when they're getting ready to plant their pastures, put in different grasses, things like that. That's great. Thank you so much. So um yeah, one of my friend's horses is uh, currently dealing with, he'll come in from the pasture with uh, runny poo. And after, you know, if it's a really chilly, if it, let's say it's been a chilly morning, we turned him out, um, she brings him in in the afternoon and he has a lot of runny poo. Is that something that's probably attributable to the sugars in the grasses? It could be. It could also be, um, it could also be associated with his eating habits. And so, Um, When you think about turning them out and if there are maybe things that make the grasses more tasty um, associated with frost, so maybe some of the cells have ruptured, maybe the the sugars are more available, Um, maybe if they go out and they do some extra special eating that can Mm -hmm. relate to it too. So um, one of the things that we have been trying to figure out is whether or not um, there are 
composition factors in the grasses that affect palatability. We haven't really been able to identify identify that very well, but we do find that, uh, or at least we think, that one of the things that's important to the horse is texture. And so if during, on a frosty day, you know the grass is kind of wilted and it's got a more desirable texture, maybe they eat more. I'm just like totally speculating huh. here, so. That's cool. That's interesting. It's like, it's like candy. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they see it and they're, they're pulling. For, I know I, the other day I was taking my horse toward the horse trailer um, to go on a little adventure and it was a frosty morning and he just wanted to stop and eat more than, more than ever. So maybe it is. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It is. So with hard and easy keepers, um, we're always just trying to achieve the ideal body condition with our horses. So I understand recently you had a student look at whether we're using the best methods to monitor, monitor our horses' body condition, body condition and obesity. Um, what did you guys find with that research? Yeah, that was um, Ashley Fowler uh, is a student who fin just finished her PhD about a year and a half ago. And um, that was part of her PhD research. And so she was working with thoroughbreds and um, they have sort of a different body type and not a lot of the body condition scoring type of uh, papers that have been published have really dealt with thoroughbreds. And so she looked at both looking at body condition scoring, she looked at um, some measures of fat thickness using uh, ultrasound to be able to measure fat thickness. Um, and she then um, used some other morphometric measurements as well, um, you know, heart girth, uh, neck circumference, some of those things. And in general, our horses were not, they were not in the high end of the body condition score. So they were pretty um, generally between, somewhere between like a four and a half and a six for the most part. And so generally what we found was that the body condition scoring system is probably a little bit uh, better at detecting some differences um, than say looking at uh, fat thickness in particular depots. But they're they're all probably useful and they may be that some methods are more useful um, when you're looking at thin horses. So maybe being able to look at fat thickness um, on the rump in a thin horse might be more useful than looking at it in a fat horse because they are starting to mobilize their, their systems, their fat in different ways. So we think probably it's, uh, what we think is that probably this, many systems are out there and that depending upon what you're doing, if you're trying to look at refeeding a horse that's in thin condition versus trying to take weight off a horse that's in fat condition, you probably need to use a combination of techniques. That's really interesting, thank you. So I also understand that some of your research impacts not only horses, but the environment. Could you describe some of your digestive physiology and capacity research? Yeah, that's part of Ashley uh, Fowler's work as well. Ashley very, was very interested in phosphorus and she's also really interested in the environment. And so we know that um, phosphorus is one of the nutrients that's required by animals, but it's also one that uh, can affect water quality. And so if we get too much phosphorus into the environment, we can get, we can damage our water quality and that's not a good thing. So, and that really, uh, I think, as we keep horses uh, in urban and suburban 
areas, but also in central Kentucky where we have a large concentration of horses, um, it's important for us to be thinking about not just um, feeding the horse, but sort of feeding the horse strategically so that we are meeting their requirements without providing excessive nutrients. And so um, one of the things that Ashley was really interested in understanding is the true digestibility of phosphorus. And phosphorus is a really interesting nutrient because um, it is quantitatively excreted back out through the feces. And so what that means is for many nutrients, you can measure intake and you can measure what comes out in the feces and the difference is what was digested. Mm -hmm. But with phosphorus, regardless of how much they actually digest, when they get ready to excrete the excess, they put it back into the GI tract. With other uh, minerals like calcium, they put the excess into the urine, but not with phosphorus, they put it back into the feces. And so that makes it hard to actually measure how digestible the phosphorus is. And you might think, well, okay, who cares? Well, all of our nutrient requirements are based on the assumption that phosphorus is either 35% digestible or 45% digestible in our typical feeds. And so um, if that number's wrong, if, it, if the number is actually higher, so if actually the phosphorus is 60% or 80% digestible, what that means is that we're probably overfeeding phosphorus. And that means the horses are excreting more than they should back on the land. So that's kind of, I think that's, as time goes by, um, environmental stewardship on horse operations will become increasingly important. Um, and it, it has to do with controlling mud and other things, but it also has to do with what we feed them. Thank you. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you've mentioned Central Kentucky. We're both based here in thoroughbred country in Lexington, Kentucky. And I know that some of your research um, is also based in mares and foals. So what are some things you're studying in this population and what are you learning? So I um, have a graduate student by the name of Morgan Piles and Morgan has uh, done both her master's and her PhD research um, working, looking at the uh, microbial community of the foal, foal's GI tract, and then also looking at the effect of diet on mare milk composition. And so the most important thing um, when we're raising horses is getting a healthy foal on the ground, right? That's where it all starts. And so we know that foals can be affected by diarrhea. And in many cases, they get transient diarrhea. It's not a big deal. But in some cases, they can get diarrhea that can be um, pathogenic and it can cause them to become dehydrated and it can even cause them to die. So they, they don't have a lot of resilience if they do get a severe case of diarrhea. And so diarrhea has to do with GI function. And so veterinarians, I think, look at, um, they look at disease and in treating disease and animal scientists look at management and in understanding what's normal. Um, and so one of the things that Morgan's been really interested in doing is trying to understand how the foal's GI tract is colonized with normal, appropriate bacteria um, 
as soon as the foal is born. And so we know that that process happens really fast. Um, and so one of the things that she has been working on is trying to understand how the carbohydrates that are in mare milk serves as the substrate for those pioneer species. Because the normal bacteria, as they colonize, they can be useful in preventing the pathogenic bacteria from gaining a foothold. So if we can understand what's good for the good bacteria, that means we might be able to promote whatever the substances are that they like, um, sort of in a prebiotic way, um, and be able then to promote the good bacteria. So she's been looking at the carbohydrates that are in mere milk um, as a way of doing that. That's so interesting, and you're giving the foals a good start um, with that pioneer bacteria. So um, what are some common misconceptions that you have encountered um, about feeding horses? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna talk about three. Um, the first one is um, related to body condition scoring. And so the, the system that we use here in the United States was created by Dr. Henneke, and it uses a one to nine scoring system where uh, for one, he considered, he, the word he used was poor, and that would be a very, very thin horse. And then a nine was one that I think he described as being um, very, very fat. Um, but five was a, a word, the word that he applied to five was moderate. And I think that for some reason, folks have come to believe that five, a uh, body condition score of five, which means that the uh, neck and the shoulder are smoothly blended, um, horse's back is flat, the ribs can be felt, but they don't show, that people think that that condition score is ideal. And he never, I don't think, intended it to be ideal. He just intended the system to be used um, as a way of monitoring horses, either on the way up or the way down, um, or in applying it to find um, perhaps body condition scores that were the best for certain functions. And he was interested in reproductive physiology. So he was interested in how body condition of mares affected their uh, reproductive efficiency. And what he found was that when mares were in body condition scores, when they started the breeding season in a body condition score of five or above, they had higher reproductive efficiency than if they started the breeding season below a five. It didn't matter whether they were a six or even if they were a seven, they still had the same reproductive efficiency as the horses that were a five. And so for broodmares, it could be particularly this time of year. Um, I would like to recommend to folks that this time of year, if you live in a cold climate and your broodmare lives mostly outside, you probably want to have her in a body condition score of six. Um, because as she goes through winter, she'll have some body stores that she can mobilize. And that's the way nature intended grazing animals. They put on stores in the fall. So that as they approach the winter, they have stores that they can pull upon when resources are scarce. So for me, a mare that's five today, um, if she's pregnant and she's gonna fall in February, that's probably too low. Um, on the other hand, if you're talking about an endurance horse, maybe an endurance horse should be below five if you think about marathon athletes and what their body condition scores are. So I think we really need to think about ideal body condition in the context of whatever the horse's job is and the conditions that they're going to be living in. So that was, that's my little get, that's my little on the soapbox thing. 
yeah, that's good. So, you know, yeah. it's and we all have very different uh, perspectives on what we think is ideal for our own horse. Oh. Um, you can see that just in the way people respond to each other's horses' body condition in the barn. And one person is like, "Oh yeah, he he could use a few more groceries," and then you're thinking, "No, he's he's actually he's fine. The vet said he was fine." <laughs> you know, so it's just so interesting to. Um, I mean, some people really like their round show horses. They really do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. I think that's, and that's, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, those are the expectations of whatever event they are in. You know, mm -hmm, indeed. They, they look alike. So, yeah. Another area yeah. that I think uh, folks sometimes think about is when they look at um, a textured feed that we often refer to as a sweet feed, they think that it has more sugar in it than a pelleted feed. And that's not necessarily true. Um, the amount of sugar that's in the feed could be exactly the same. And in fact, we did a little study um, a few years ago where we went out and purchased feeds uh, that were available in both a sweet feed form and in a pelleted form that were basically the same feed from different feed companies. Mm -hmm. So um, you could get whichever your preference was as far as physical form. And when we analyzed them for non-structural carbohydrates, they were very, very similar. So um, it could be that a sweet feed has more sugar, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Hmm. Yeah. But that's and interesting. Then, yeah, I, I think so. And I think um, there's lots of, lots of reasons to um, look at the composition. If you look at the ingredients and you'll notice even in pelleted feeds that they often provide, put in some molasses. So mm -hmm. just something for folks to realize. The last thing I was gonna say was, um, I think folks have some misconceptions about what kind of forage quality they should pick. And I think part of that is because the forage scientists um, and animal nutritionists that work with grazing or forage eating species that are used for meat production, they want the most calories per unit of forage that they can get. That's the most productive situation for those systems. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the best hay for a horse that has low calorie needs. And so, mm -hmm. you know, high quality forage is something that we all want to feed because it sounds like we should, but we need to feed really clean hay, but we need to pick it pick forage that meets the horse's nutrient needs. And so, you know, lower quality forage in terms of lower nutrient density, is gonna be perfectly fine for horses that have lower nutrient needs. Yes, um, and, there, and if you look at a, the average boarding barn and you see the very different types of, of bodies that are in there, um, and we're all using the same hay supply, it's no wonder that um, several of us have bought different types of hay to supplement that based on our own horse's needs. Yep. So um, you are an innovator in the equine nutrition world, and this uh, this podcast is about innovators. So where do you think we're headed with equine nutrition research in the next decade? Well, one of the, the great things that I think is happening is that um, there's a lot more interest from veterinarians in nutrition. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of um, a lot more nutrition papers in the veterinary literature and I think that that's great um, because we know in human health that diet is so important um, and we know that the for instance the microbiome of the GI tract has so many far-reaching effects on our health and so I think that um, as we go forward we're going to see a lot more integration between um, 
veterinarians and nutritionists working together um, sort of from a, a more a broader perspective on some of the things related to um, horse health. And so I think that that's really good. I think we're going to see more strategic feeding um, as we try to understand the requirements better so that we're not either overfeeding or underfeeding. And the other thing that I think we're going to see more of because we have much better technology now and we have better um, laboratory techniques is that um, some of the nutrients that we feed horses and that we know are required, we really have very little research on. And so in particular, many of the vitamins have been studied hardly at all. Um, and so I, I think that we're getting to a point where um, we're going to have assays that are easier to do and less expensive um, to be able to pursue some of that research because many of the requirements for vitamins that we have for horses are based on either small numbers of studies or older studies or studies with a very few number of horses. Hmm. Yeah, I we just ran an article on vitamins and um, I remember the, the source saying something about that. We are relying on some of the older research. That's wonderful that you guys um, are working toward this. And I just love hearing about the collaborations um, between the different types of researchers uh, in order to move this topic forward. I should, I don't know that I mentioned it, but I should say that one of our most important collaborators in thinking about the horses uh, microbial community of the gastrointestinal tract has been with the USDA ARS unit that's here on campus and with Dr. Michael Fleith, who's a um, basically a gastrointestinal microbiologist, mostly works with cattle. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I just love to hear about what you have going on and what, what you're going to be having your hands in moving forward. Um, where can the uh, listener go online and uh, learn more about your research? Well, um, University of Kentucky Equine Programs has a great website. And so um, if you just Google Kentucky Equine Programs, you should be able to get right there. Um, and it's uh, they have information about all of the faculty that participate and staff that participate in equine programs um, here, different types of research as well as teaching and also extension and lots of publications that come out of our extension service. So um, that'd be a great place to go. Thank you. And if you go to thehorse.com and you search uh, Dr. Laurie Lawrence, we have a number of stories that cover her research. And also, she's been a guest on our Ask the Horse Live and um, plenty of information there, too. Um, so thank you so much, for Dr. Lawrence, for your time and excellent insight on this important subject today. I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast and answering these questions. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was great. I want to thank our sponsor also, Zoetis. For more from the horse, please visit thehorse.com, sign up for our e-newsletters, e or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please join us next time as we explore the horse industry equine innovators.